But this morning, we're actually uh, spending time in Ephesians 1. Let's go over there where we've been for 24 weeks now. Uh, and so we're getting used to uh, opening our Bibles right to chapter 1 of Ephesians today, verse number 19 and 20. 19 and 20. As you can see, we're almost through the chapter. We're getting closer. So here in the middle of the thought, let me back up to verse 18. I'll read 18, 19, 20, and we'll have a word of prayer here. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Heavenly Father, help us again today, we pray, as we work our way into this passage and seek to understand it. There's, there's so much here that we must know. And I pray that you would challenge our hearts with it today. As we sit at your feet, Lord, you, you are so gracious to us in teaching us, knowing who we are, knowing how far we fall short of what your scripture calls us to do and calls us to be. And yet you're so merciful and patient with us. And you allow us room to grow. And you, you work so gently and yet so precisely in our lives. And that's why we're here, is that you might continue that work as you promised to do, making us to be like your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're going to talk about him and the power that we have that was exerted in the resurrection of our Savior. So help us to understand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, section, we've looked at it a little bit before, but this phrase, especially in verse 19, these are in accordance. He's speaking of the power uh, that he just referenced, the surpassing greatness of his power. And the word these, that's kind of interesting how that's put into our text here, because in my translation in front of me, that's in italics. I mean, they inserted that to help us understand what he's, he's talking about. Actually, the phrase is, is uh, a, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. But that, that phrase, these, he, he's trying to wrap up the whole concept of what is the hope of his calling? What is the riches of the glory of his inheritance? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us? We need to know this. He's talking about our eyes and our heart being enlightened so we can understand, so we can know. What's the value of knowing it? Why? Why do we need to know this? It's easy for us to comment on the attributes of God. Matter of fact, I say the word, and you probably have a list going through your mind right away. Say attributes of God, and, and maybe you're, you only bring up Latin terms all of a sudden. Uh, it may be the only Latin you know, but you know these three words. Omnipresence. Omniscience. Omnipotence. And you say, hey, I do know Latin. All right? 
We've got three words that we stick into our minds and we bring them up when we talk about the attributes of God. Of course, there's, there's so many things in that. If we, if we say that God is omnipresent, we mean that He is everywhere present all the time. Does that stop you in your tracks just to think that through? Where can you go apart away from him? Psalm says nowhere. Nowhere. That's an incredible concept. When we say he's omniscient, he's omniscient. Does that mean he knows everything? Everything? (laughs) Everything in the past? Everything right now? Everything in the future too? Now think of that. That's incredible to think We can't even think like that, that he thinks like that. But he knows everything. He even knows the words before we speak them. Book of Psalms tells us. Omniscience. When we talk about omnipotence, we say that he is powerful. We say that he is all-powerful. Now, that's not more powerful. That is all-powerful. That's an incredible term, too. And yet that's the one that we're going to insert in our concepts here this morning as we think through these verses. When I was at Cornerstone just a few weeks ago, I was going through attributes with the students and asking them to keep the list. They, they, you know, they have to learn that holiness and goodness and mercy and all that. And they're going rattling through the list. And then one added a Latin word I'd never heard in my life. Omni-awesome. I said, well, sounds Latin, doesn't it? Omni-awesome, the attribute of God. I said, well, that's interesting. But this is the way the uh, Amplified Version reads for the verses that we have in front of us. And and I like the way it says this. uh, The writer in verse 19 says, And so that you can know and understand what is the immeasurable and unlimited and surpassing greatness of his power in and for us who believe as demonstrated in the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now, that's a powerful list of words. And I I like that word unlimited. Unlimited. Now, here's a question that's going to we're going to frame our thoughts around, especially today. Why is it that we tend to separate what we know about God from what we do in ministry, in service? Why is it we separate these two things, what we know about God and what we do? What we do. You know, we have a a tendency that our thinking in ministry tends to go toward our own strength. We, we make decisions on our own wisdom. We make or desire results. And we're going to have them, however we're going to make it work. It's by our will more times than not. And we're our provisions, generally. We figure them out according to our own resources, don't we? We tend to do that, uh, and I know that, and I, I see a mirror right in front of me as I say that. But here in Ephesians 1, we have seen, in verse 3, 
that our Lord Jesus Christ and our Father and God has blessed us with almost every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Right? No. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Every single one of them. Why? So that we would be self-satisfied. So that we would be uh, content. So that we would be self-absorbed and self-sufficient. Right? He gave us all these things so that he wouldn't have to keep giving us things. So that we would just have the whole package and we're fine and, and we could go on our way and do it our, our own way. Right? Obviously not. The whole point of this series has been that he is invested in us that we might have everything we need to serve him. Everything. And that's the, the picture we have walked through all the way from verse 1 to this point. We've talked about what God has done, what God has done, what God has done, what God has done. And we come down to a place where we're starting to say, now, what do we know about what he's done? Does that spill into what we do? Does our service reflect our knowledge of our God? And that's a question I, I do have to ask myself and all of us together. I want to give you a contrast in just a, a way of illustrating this. Uh, put your bookmark here and go with me to 1 Samuel 17. Very familiar passage to you. Matter of fact, you hardly even need the story read to you, I know. But 1 Samuel chapter 17... We've got a group of Philistines on one side of the hill, and you've got a group of Israelites on the other side of the hill, and there's a battle supposed to take place there. But the, the uh, uh, plan simply boiled down to this. We will send our champion, and you send your champion, and let those two fight it out, and the winner represents the entire army. And if the Philistines' champion wins, then you're all our servants. And if your champion wins, then we're your servants. Now that's an easy way to do warfare, isn't it? Except that the one champion's nine foot six. He wears armor that weighs 125 pounds. He carries with him this, this javelin that the head alone is 16 pounds. In case you're wondering, how much is that? Carrying around two gallons, two gallons of milk in one hand for the rest of the day. And you got a feel for just the head of the javelin that this man throws. That's their champion. You know his name? Goliath. It's Goliath. Absolutely. Goliath is the one on the one side. And we find here in 1 Samuel 17, verse number 3, the Philistines stood, stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And then the champion came out from the army of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's 125 pounds, is close our estimate. He also had a bronze, bronze greaves on his leg and bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of the spear weighed 600 shekels of iron, his shield carrier also walked before him. And he stood and shouted 
to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out in battle array? Am I not a Philistine? You servants of Saul, choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. See that phrase? All right, jump over to, to verse number 23. David has entered the scene here. And as he was talking with them, he's talking to his the soldiers there around him, and his brothers were in the crowd as well. But as he's talking to them, it says, Behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke the same words. And David heard them. And when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. Right, you got the picture, right? This man enters and everyone runs. They're scared of this man. They don't want to fight him. They don't want to fight him. Now, you know how it develops. You've seen the flannel graph, right? What's he do? David volunteers. He says, I'll go and fight this giant. And his brother sneers at him for it. Uh, Saul gets word of it. Saul says, hey, perfect. Now, there's our champion. Saul says, good, I'll send David. Uh, David Put on my armor. Let's try it on. And he goes through several verses here where he dresses him up in his armor. And of course it was much too big and David couldn't even operate in that. It it didn't fit. And then jump down to verse 41. David had gone to the brook and he just chose the stones, you remember. And he approached the Philistine. In verse 41, the Philistine, it says, came and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, but he, for he was but a youth and ready with a handsome appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord would deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know, these are important words, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This wasn't about David, now was it? He went into battle to show who is the Lord. And he says, in verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. What David did 
And you know the rest of the story, right? What David did was based on what he knew about his God. He went in there with something far better than armor. (laughs) He went in there with the God of Israel. And he thought, and you know how it turns out. But this is important to understand that David not once took credit. He said, this is God's battle. I'm here in his name. See, what he knew led to what he did. I want to show you a contrast now. You ready? John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Verse number 19. I'll give you kind of a background to this verse. Jesus has died on the cross. Jesus has been buried in the tomb. Three days has gone by. Right, you know what they were talking about now, right? We're on the third day after Christ had been buried. John chapter 20, I mean, yeah, 20 verse 19. So when the evening on that day, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When I read that, there was one little phrase that kind of stuck out in the middle of that. When the doors were shut for fear. When the doors were shut for fear. What did these disciples know about Jesus? Is this the same group that saw him heal the lame? Okay, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. I'll give you a clue. The answer is yes to every one of them. All right? I like these easy quizzes. Is this the same group that saw him heal the lame? Yes. Yes. Is this the same group that that watched him give hearing to the deaf? Yes. The same group that saw him give sight to the blind? The same group that saw him raise the dead? Oh. Are they the same ones that worshipped him when he calmed the sea? Is this the same group that heard Peter say one time, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, so far it's still yes, but now you're starting to wonder. uh, Or you're tired. This is the same group that had heard him say, After three days I will rise again. And where are they? In an upper room, doors locked for fear. For fear. Now, what they knew wasn't translated into what they did. What they knew about Jesus, what they had seen with their own eyes. John will even confess that in his epistle. He says, we heard him with our ears, we saw him with our eyes, we touched him with our hands. And yet they're standing there in fear. In fear. It, it, it didn't produce what... Their doors were shut for fear. I kind of thought that through. And I thought, I wonder if that just might be the description where we find ourselves often. When we look at the project set before us, and, 
And I always think in terms of ministry, but there's a lot more I know that's represented here in, in the day-to-day living the Christian life. But sometimes we're faced with things, challenging things, difficult things. In ministry, we have big responsibilities and, and all that sets before us. And sometimes it's the provisions that make us fear. Sometimes it's the decisions that make us fear. Sometimes it's the strength issue. I just don't know if I can do it. So sometimes it's the fact we don't have direction and we're not sure which which way we are to go. And so, how many times might it be said of us that our service looks like ones who have shut the door for fear? And we're much like them. You saw a contrast between these two episodes here. And you may say, what an interesting contrast. One knew who the Lord was and fearlessly went out into battle. Even though he was over, you know, whelmed with the size and with the challenge before him, he knew God. These others knew the Lord too. But they locked the door out of fear. Interesting contrast between these two. This... Uh, past couple of weeks I've been enjoying a, a um, biography of Hudson Taylor. I highly recommend you get to know this uh, missionary that went to China. In that uh, there are a lot of phrases, and some of them I, I read to you on occasion and you've heard before. Uh, one of my favorite phrases he used was depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. I believe that's true. This man lived it. That's what his biography reads to us. Uh, he went inland China when nobody else would. He went to a dark place that desperately needed the gospel, and it was dangerous. There was a war going on when he went into that country. And he went because these people needed to hear the gospel. Many feared that, that uh, ministry, he went. Many stayed home, he went. We still read of him today. Because he lived by a simple principle. That dependence upon God was the key to ministry. Not a, a nice option along the way. Not an occasional once a week I think I'll just draw near to God and, and glean from him and the rest of the week is up to me. This man lived like this. This is what he said. And I've got other quotes here. They're great. God alone is sufficient for God's own work. That one takes a while to think through. It's powerful. Here's another one he said. We need a faith that rests continually upon a great God, expecting Him to keep His own word and to exactly what He has promised. It is not greater faith that you need, but faith in a great God pretty neat. He says God has his own universities and ways of training men for service. <laughs> and this is what he desired more than anything as he eventually became the leader of a group that went into China. This is what he asked the Lord for. He wasn't interested in a great number of men. He wasn't interested in a large amount of resources. He just simply said, God, give me your man in your place doing your work 
your way for your glory. That's what he desired. Now, what about us? Can we fit into such a thing as God's own man in God's own place doing God's own work for God's own way for his own glory? We have a passage before us here in Ephesians. It talks about the great power of God to us. The great power of God to us. How have we limited that? In what we do. Now, I'm not, I'm not hesitating to, to suggest that you already know how great his power is. You know he is omnipotent. But do we live like he is omnipotent? Do we serve like he is omnipotent? We are told that this great power is within us. It's not our power. It says in verse 19, what is this? There's passing greatness of his power toward us who believe. This power is called surpassingly great. How do you measure that? It is limited only to the degree that God is limited. And He is not. This is an enormous concept to comprehend. This is not His powers out there. And I'm right here. But His power is within us. The surpassing greatness of His power. And then He has to describe it for us so we understand it. This is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You've got a, a picture, the raising from the dead. That's victory, right? And he seated him at the right hand. That's authority. Victory and authority. And he said, go to the disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them all that I've commanded you. And by the way, I am with you. Who's with us? God is with us. This one that we speak of right here, he hasn't left us alone. He didn't say, now you go figure it out. Do it on your strength. Do it on your wisdom. Do it with your resources. You know how long that's going to last? It isn't. And you know that as well as I. That's why it's beautiful when we study this passage, we say, okay, this is the power of God. And let's consider what he has to define it as. And I wish I had a lot of time this morning, because look at all these pages. Woo! But let me give you a sample of what's in front of me right now. When we talk about the resurrection of Christ, you start with verses like this, 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for us so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's our topic of sanctification or Christian living. It's tied to the resurrection of Christ. You can't separate those. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and do we? Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. That's another passage. It speaks of the rapture. It's tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that means that's true. Right? Has to be. 
Because if you deny the resurrection, you have to deny the rapture. It's just the reality of the way it's presented. The facts, all the way through the book of Acts, you can cite this in, in a good exercise for you. Every time the apostles opened their mouth, it wasn't within two or three paragraphs that they were talking about the resurrection. Every single time. And how quickly they could have been disproved. Just bring out a body. But they knew he had risen. And with that, they were able to speak with boldness and authority. Guess who was in power? It wasn't them. It was a resurrected Lord. That's why I've got verses everywhere. They just excite me just to read it. Even down to the very statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. The summation of the whole. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he raised from, uh, and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That resurrection fact is woven all over the pages of scripture. We wouldn't have anything without that. We talk about the results, how the agony of death has been put away because God raised him up again. It says that we have been blessed in turning away from our wicked ways because he has been risen from the dead. It says that uh, uh, we have seen even um, the fact that uh, we walk in newness of life because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead to the glory of the Father. We are, are, are in a position where death no longer is a master because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We have justification because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We have our transgressions forgiven because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We have been bearing fruit. Here's a great one. Romans 7, 4. Look at it. The whole point of this is that he who has raised him from the dead in order that we might bear fruit. That's service. So what we know is important, isn't it? It's tied to that resurrection. And that's still just a sampling of this. He gives life to our mortal bodies. He raises us up with imperishable bodies. He raises us up with glory and with power and a spiritual body. Why? Because he rose from the dead. You find that in 1 Corinthians 15. Who can condemn us? Romans asks. It's Jesus Christ who died, yes, and was raised. Who's at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us? That resurrection is right there again. He goes on to say, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. What isn't tied to the resurrection? That's probably the better way to start this sentence. What isn't tied to the resurrection? Like I said, I've got page after page after page. Wow. All these verses that just keep saying it over and over and over again. We need to be convinced of these facts. True. We need to know these facts. Yes. This is our God. This is what he's able to do. But how does that translate into our life? How does that translate into our service? Do we just know it and we do something else? Or do we know it and we do based on what we know. There's that contrast that I gave you here earlier. But this is two verses I read to you. And the question is, is God able? 
can, can we really trust him? This is what Paul raised one time in a, in a conversation. He says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? <laughs> what a simple statement that sounds like. Why? Why is it considered incredible among you that people you people that God does raise the dead. And then in Hebrews 11, you say, well, a lot of this is good. This is where we are now. But you know, this same thought has been going a long time. Abraham, back in Genesis, was willing to plunge a knife through his son's breast and kill him. And what was on his mind? These words, and it's recorded in Scripture. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Incredible, isn't it? How can he consider that's true? Because he knew his God. He knew his God. So he responded appropriately. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Beautiful verse. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What are we short on, folks? What are we missing? What provision has he not given to us? What direction has he not explained to us? What, what decision have we had to make where his wisdom was not sufficient? You know the answer to all of that, don't you? God is able. There's my theology in a nutshell. God is able. If we believe that, if we're convinced of that, we read these words in Ephesians and it talks about His great power there that brought Jesus Christ from the dead. Where is it? It's His power toward us who believe. It's His power given to us that we might serve Him. That we may have all that we need to serve Him. We are not missing a thing. We are not missing a thing. The strength we need is not based on us. <laughs> no, it's based on Him. He's the omnipotent one. When it says that He is all-powerful, we ought to serve like that. We ought to decide like that. We ought to, to walk like that. We call it an immeasurable, unlimited, surpassing greatness of power. And we cannot separate that from what we do. Alright? We cannot separate that from what we do. Because ministry is not by our strength. Decision making is not by our wisdom. Results are not by our will. Provisions are not by our resources. It is God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It is God who provides all this for us so that we can serve. So that we can serve. If nothing else, it takes all the burden off of us. Do you like burden? you enjoy feeling miserable? I think it's incredible how we strap ourselves to all these wants and burdens and cares as if they're not there. And all the while he says, I have it for you. Here it is. Trust me. See, there's a, a little phrase we must change in our terminology. I've told you this before, but it was uh, Joshua and Carrie were in third grade and they had a teacher who 
absolutely forbid them all year long to use the word can't. That was rule number one in their classroom. You cannot use that word. Uh, it's kind of hard to even make the rule without using it, isn't it? Chant uh, wasn't allowed. And I think maybe that's where our terminology needs to shift a little bit. When the Lord has called us to serve him, can't is not going to be in our vocabulary. Matter of fact, here's your option. You can either work by can't, or you can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Where are you today? Where are you today? In, in perhaps the Lord has laid burdens on your heart of ministry opportunities, people to, he wants you to go talk to. People that you know are in need and, and he can use you to, to meet that particular need. You're hesitant. I've been there many times. Hesitant. I've kind of locked doors at times for fear. You ever been there? Afraid of a decision? You don't know what to do? Maybe it's resources that, that just overwhelm you and you say, I don't know, Lord. How can I possibly do this when I just don't have enough for myself, even? You've been there before? I think this is a good passage for us. Because this is our God who can. And he's proved it, hasn't he? That's the power that God has at work in us. Let's talk to him about this. Lord, since you know everyone in the room and exactly where we are and what we need, you are at work in our hearts to help us understand who you are. Lord, I know how often I've put my eyes in the wrong place and looked at myself. I see my shortcomings. I, I see how often I decide on my own wisdom and try to operate by my own power. And I try to force the results by my own will. Lord, you know what the results are in those stories. Lord, I, I, I do not like that position. I read in Scripture that I must trust you. I must lean on you. I even must cast all my cares upon you because you care for me. I pray that you might do that work in our hearts here today. Where we stop relying on ourselves. And stop thinking that all these blessings were just showered on us because we needed it for ourselves. But you've done this that we might serve. So, turn our direction around in our minds, in our hearts, in our vision. Help us to see what you would have us to do. And may we do it because of the God we know. And that your name gets the glory and the honor. We want to be your person in your place, doing your work for your glory. So challenge us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.